This is the ACR 2022 topic panel. In this podcast, our panel will discuss their best abstracts on the topics they were covering at our meeting. Hope you enjoy. 22 conference, I want to introduce them to you. Um, let's start with Eric. Hi, Eric Dine. I'm uh, from New Jersey and currently here on site in a hotel lobby, hoping that um, I'm able to continue the feed to stay on with you. Sheila. Hi, I'm Sheila from the Philippines and I'm joining you virtually and hopefully my internet connection stays through until the discussion ends. Yusuf. Hello, my name is uh, Yusuf. Uh, I'm from Leeds, United Kingdom. Uh, I'm reporting um, also uh, through a virtual format. Janet. Hi, Janet Pope. I'm in London, Canada, and I'm here live. Bella. Hi, I'm Bella Mata from New York, and I'm here at the ACR 22 Live. Oh, you're muted. I think you're asking for me. So yes, hi, I'm, I'm Mike for Putman from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I am reporting to you live from the great city of Philadelphia. <laughs> So we've been through a whole day of conference and there's been some really interesting lupus topics that have been presented at this meeting. Um, why don't we go around and just kind of tell our audience what have captured our eyes for today's meeting? Um, Eric, do you want to start? Absolutely. So I'm going to talk about the draft proposal for the ACR ULAR uh, antiphospholipid classification criteria. Uh, so of course, building off of the, um, the prior iterations of the Sapporo classification. So there's a lot to talk about. Um, and, and again, these are the draft proposals. They're, they're not finalized quite yet. But um, in a very brief synopsis of it, they definitely try to add more detail um, to the kind of standard approach that was there before of, of defining antiphospholipid as lab and clinical characteristics. But there's a lot that goes into uh, being a little bit more specific for each of them. So there's a lot more detail in it. Uh, of course, these are classification criteria, so it's meant for research um, audience and, and not necessarily, you know, it is not a diagnostic criteria. So these are more specific uh, and meant to be to exclude out other things for a research perspective. But in it, again, it still has the clinical and the lab findings. There's uh, a calculated score that you need three points of each in order to satisfy, not just one of each the way it was before. Uh, but there's a lot more detail for what is a clinical cl classification. There's um, six clinical criterion right now, or six clinical domains, as I call it. Uh, there's macrovascular venous thrombosis, macrovascular arterial thrombosis, microvascular uh, obstetrical valvular disease, uh, or hematologic, or, or um, in this case, thrombocyte, thrombocytopenia. And there's much more detail in terms of what is a macrovascular uh, and arterial, it actually breaks it down by if there's other risk factors that could be playing a role. Um, microvascular, is it suspected or is it um, confirmed on pathology, gets you different points. Um, obstetrical, they, they flush out a lot more as to what actually is obstetrical complications because that was definitely one of the issues with the prior criteria. Um, and again, adding the cardiac and the, and the hematologic manifestations that were not part of it before. Uh, and then they also have new information for um, for the labs, because again, it was just kind of a yes or no previously. Um, one thing I thought was interesting was 
lupus anticoagulant, you get a certain number of points for, for it being there at one point in time, uh, and you get more points if it's there persistently. So you do not need to wait the three months in order to put someone in the classification criteria if either there's a very high concern at the outset with these other factors, um, or if they're on anticoagulation and you don't want to take them off warfarin to, to retest them. Um, and then they also break down um, the, the anti-cardiolipin and beta-2 glycoprotein. Is it IgM versus IgG? Uh, high titer versus moderate titer? Uh, and so there's a lot more detail in it in terms of building out the scoring system. And so that's the quick down and dirty of it in summary. But I think it's interesting to see those kind of components that they change. I think it's, it would definitely be more cumbersome in clinical practice, which, again, is not meant to be. So it's meant to be used for research and doing it. And it actually is, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, but it actually is a pretty simple form that it looks like um, that it doesn't seem too intensive. So I, I think it looks like um, what they propose actually does seem to be very valid and, and able to be used appropriately and addressing some of those prior concerns. Are they still recommending um, repeating in three months? Um, and then are they also going to be excluding the IgA anti-cardiolipin antibodies? Yes, yeah, so, so they did not include IgA. Uh, they did not include any other um, antiphospholipid antibodies besides cardiolipin and uh, beta 2 glycoprotein beta 2 glycoprotein and lupus anticoagulant, so phospholipidylserin, uh, and, and all of those are not included in it. They said there just was not enough evidence at the time that they were doing it to, to include those. So that was definitely something that came up in the question and answers as, as a point of concern for some people. Um, in, in terms of the repeat testing, so there, there, is the ability to count lupus anticoagulation lupus anticoagulant once, but you do get more points if you if you then do repeat it in patients that you're not clear on the outset. And for the cardiolipin, the beta 2 glycoprotein, which of course often goes up and down, that has to be repeated in order to count for the classification criteria. But if you have a patient who's triple positive on the outset, thrombocytopenic with multiple clots, you, you don't necessarily need to prove it three months later in order to put them in the criteria. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I don't know if you all saw this, but um, they were looking at the IgA anti-cardiolipin antibody and the higher risk for atherosclerotic disease. And I was just mm -hmm. like, wow, why, why are we looking at IgA anti-cardiolipin? But who knows, maybe this is a whole different kind of phenotype compared to APS that we traditionally see. Anyway, Sheila, tell me about what has caught your eye. Hi, okay, so, um, well, what interested me are um, topics about hydroxychloroquine. So I'll talk about um, an abstract that I saw during the poster sessions. And um, it's about the therapeutic thresholds of hydroxychloroquine blood levels. It's um, abstract 0344. So they wanted to look into how factors such as renal function, dose or social determinants, um, can predict changes in hydroxychloroquine levels and clarify hydroxychloroquine thresholds that would um, predict adherence, efficacy, and patients at risk of um, toxicity. So um, patients, uh, what, did they di what they did were um, enrolled patients who were on hydroxychloroquine for more than a month that had um, three, uh, that had blood levels uh, or, and then measured blood levels, I mean, using uh, mass spectrometry. And um, then they used multiple regression models to assess the different factors that could affect hydroxychloroquine blood levels. And um, they found that uh, for 
for the threshold levels, they found that hydroxychloroquine more than 500 nanograms per um, ml detected adherence. And um, hydroxychloroquine within a dose of 750 to 1,000 um, were found to be effective to prevent flares in 75% of the patients. And that um, super therapeutic doses of more than 1,5 um, were seen in CKD patients. Um, of note, they found that CKD state stage 2 or more um, was associated with clinically significant increases in hydroxychloroquine levels. So, um, well, basically what, what this study would tell us is that, um, well, we should always consider um, patients or proper dosing in our patients. Um, we don't really need, we don't really regularly um, monitor hydroxychloroquine blood levels, um, as it is not really cost effective, but um, it just uh, it just reinforces um, the importance of hydroxychloroquine, its relevance in our patients with lupus, and that um, considering, you know, we need to risk gratify or consider patients who would be needing additional doses or maybe dosing down on hydroxychloroquine just so to prevent um, complications or side effects. Yeah, and you know, there was like that one abstract that says that I think when we use the five megs per keg per day dosing, rheumatologists are actually rounding down. And when they round yes. down, that's a problem, you know, because obviously hydroxychloroquine only comes in 200 milligram tablets. And so you're like, well, I mean, he needs 349 milligrams. You can't do that. So are you going to go for the 400? You're going to go for the 300. Um, and so rounding down actually can lead to higher rates of hospitalization and lupus flares in that one research project. And I know, Mike, you've had some comments about hydroxychloroquine. Um, a man with a lot of opinions. Uh, what, what do you think about all this? You mean that in a nice way, correct? Um, Absolutely. Uh, would you like me to just dive in and talk about the hydroxychloroquine abstracts that I was interested in or uh, just comment on this instead? I'm happy to do either. Both. I mean, let's let's see what um, what you have to say about this recent abstract and also what you found other hydroxychloroquine abstracts to say. So I, I enjoyed that abstract. I think that's a good point because I think people do round down. I think rheumatologists are habitually risk averse and it leads us to making very strange choices to avoid very rare toxicities. And so a lot of my research agenda right now is focused on addressing those. So uh, I, I, I think that this is a great topic and thank you, Sheila, for sharing it. I can dive in on mine unless anyone else has anything you want to add there. I guess one one thing is that the rheumatologists obviously round down, and the other thing is adherence, right? This is a twice a day pill uh, for patients, and there's like some abstracts sort of talking about how the adherence is less than 60-70% in hydroxychloroquine. Just up by a raise of hands, um, how many of you actually measure hydroxychloroquine blood levels? Do you do that at all? I mean, can't get it. Can't get it. You can't get it. But, I know we can but, order it through commercial labs, but I think yeah. that that's a way of um, seeing whether or not our patients are at therapeutic levels because there was another abstract. I don't know if you were going to touch base on this, Mike, but they were looking at patients who had end-stage renal disease. Is that the abstract you're talking about? Okay. So they were looking at patients 
who have end-stage renal disease. And they were trying to compare the group that had hydroxychloroquine continued or hydroxychloroquine plus glucocorticoids or plano glucocorticoids, because the doctors were very afraid that hydroxychloroquine would reach toxic levels or patients might have cardiotoxicity, right? And so when they compared the groups, they followed them and they found that actually, if you continued hydroxychloroquine during end-stage renal disease, it actually, these patients have a lot lower risk for infection, lower risk for lupus flares compared to patients who only had corticosteroids. So, I mean, don't stop hydroxychloroquine even with end-stage renal disease. That's That was the take-home message that I, I have found. Oh, Janet, you had your hand up earlier. Um, right, so I was just going to add that um, for adherence, I don't know why a drug that stabilizes lysosomal membranes and who knows what else it does has to be a BID drug. So I often go OD. So maybe you're uh, two pills five days a week and one pill two days a week to kind of round for that. Uh, I um, not ideal, the actual body weight of five milligram per kilogram per day. But I think wherever possible for a patient, if you can make it once a day, they're more apt to take it. So that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. And we have someone from the audience, Jonathan is saying that um, there is a commercial lab, um, AVISE, that will do levels. So that might help some of the, us be able to order it too. Very good. Yeah, I, I, I order it all the time. I think it's, it's a good way to, I, I mean, I, have my patients, let's reach a goal. And, and uh, I put it on me. I'm, I need to make sure you have the right dose because we're, we're watching your, your weight, your kidney function. There's all these things that go into it, but uh, that way I, I make it a, a challenge for the patient to get the adherence as well. And I think if you uh, aren't in confrontation about it, you, you team with them, you, you make sure, look, I have some patients, we don't dose it enough and, and we need to make sure we get you there. Uh, I think it's a great tool. Yes, go for it. Yeah, so just uh, wondering the reason why we run it down because of the you know guidelines in 2016 were mentioning you know five milligram per kilo based on the patient's actual weight. You know, before it was six point five uh, milligram per kilo on uh, ideal body weight. So I'm just wondering because there's more data. It's been like two three years in a row in a conference. Everyone's mentioning like you know when you run down, there's a lot of problems with increased flare mortality. You know, so cardiac disease. Is it not the time now so that we should review it again, you know, this dose? I think maybe some, some of the platforms, I think we should bring this thing up. Oh, wow. We got hands, hands, <laughs> hands. All right. Mike had his hand up before you, Janet. Well, since we're on hydroxychloroquine, that was going to be my topic. Why don't I just dive in on my abstracts? Because I'm just going to take this to a different place. I want to see where you guys want to go with that. All right. Now, I think that rounding down is a bad idea. I think that in many cases, adjusting dose at all is a really bad idea. And when you think about the history of this, uh, about five years ago, the AAOS put out these guidelines that said, you know, there's an increased risk of retinopathy. No one likes hydroxychloroquine retinopathy. Let's adjust all the doses down. And we didn't ask any questions. We just said, great, let's reduce everyone's hydroxychloroquine. And rheumatologists, like I said, are risk averse. And we did a good job. I rarely ever see patients with lupus who are on over five mg per kg per day. It's three mg per kg per day, four mg per kg per day. We made no effort to test it or figure out if it was the right choice. And now we're finally getting evidence that this was, in fact, maybe not the best choice for a lot of patients. So the first abstract that I really love was from uh, Jacqueline Nestor. She's at the Mass General. And this is, this is abstract 1654. 
And their title says it all. Hydroxychloroquine dosing less than five mg per kg per day leads to increased hospitalizations for lupus. This isn't just increased flares, this is hospitalizations. They looked at a, a cohort study. They had 576 people who had been had more than one hospitalization. And then they said, you know, what was your dose of hydroxychloroquine if you were under or over in the period before the flare? And they calculated, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, they calculated uh, adjusted odds ratios for how likely um, you were to be hospitalized for a lupus flare based on your dose. And the results are kind of scary to me. People who are on a weight-based dose of under five mg per kg per day, 4.7 times more likely to be hospitalized with a lupus flare. That is not a benign outcome. And I get it. Like, I don't want patients to have a hydroxychloroquine retinopathy. That's a bad outcome. But lupus flares requiring hospitalization are also a bad outcome. And I think we need to have some sort of temporizing of our perspective here, where it's not every single patient in my practice needs to hit this target. It's some patients in my practice may need a higher dose. Someone who is active, recent lupus nephritis, I probably shouldn't be chasing this distant retinopathy goal. I should be focused on treating the patient in front of me who very well may need more hydroxychloroquine in these recommendations. So I totally agree. I think it was Yusu who said, I think it's time to reassess whether this is a good idea at all as a blanket recommendation. Certainly a great target, especially for people who are well-controlled. But overall, we should be careful here. There was actually the press conference this morning. Um, there was a, uh, well, Nestor presented um, the study. And then there was somebody else who made a comment. I can't remember uh, the professor's name. But what was interesting is, you know, how most hydroxychloroquine macular uh, retinopathy toxicity occurs like 10 years after use, right? That's, that's when it exponentially increased. So they made the comment, well, perhaps we should use the six megs per kegs per day dose up to 10 years, get their lupus stabilized, then reduce the dose down to five megs per kegs per day. Now, there's no data, but it sounds really reasonable to me because most of our lupus controlled trials were based on the six milligrams per kilograms per day, right? So, um, all right. So we have actually a question from one of our attendees. If you drew a hydroxychloroquine level and it's greater than 1500 milligrams or 1500 uh, milligrams units, right? So even though they're on a typical daily average dose for their weight, should you decrease the dose? to avoid toxicity. Do, Janet, do you want to take that? Yeah. So first of all, we can't get levels easily where I am in Canada. But secondly, um, it is true that exceeding a certain dose, we don't know if you get more benefit to risk. And the short term, you actually might on skin. A couple of studies have shown that exceeding the dose, you get more skin, it settles it down. But I think in the long term, uh, lupus was a risk for hydroxychloroquine toxicity, even for disease duration compared to RA. We published on that. And renal that someone else is mentioning too, renal insufficiency, some people accumulate and some people don't. So I would go down if I was doing I don't have the luxury of, love, of a level but I go down saying your level's pretty darn high maybe we can go down a bit and see if we can still keep you good but I would do that probably when they are good not in the middle of a flare Eric did you have your hand up yeah if if they're active I would not if they're if they're long-standing disease they've been on hydroxychloroquine for 10 years they're under great control we could have a conversation and talk about it I and the retinopathy is something that we can screen for. And, you know, if we have these concerns, I can increase how often they're screened and keep closer eyes on them for this toxicity and, and go from there. But I, I think it, it's not that 
you know, everyone will have toxicity and they will go blind. It's, it's that we need to watch certain patients a little bit closer, but um, we need to treat the disease first. Yeah, Mike I think, is jumping. <laughs> yeah, I think Eric nailed it. Treat the patient in front of you. Um, this is a long time. Yeah, but no. Question for the group. How many people have had someone actually go blind from hydroxychloroquine retinopathy? Just show of hands. Janet, she's our, our expert rheumatologist. How many people in your practice have you seen this in? Okay, so what I have to uh, tell you is that it's almost all of them were chloroquine. And I'm so glad that chloroquine during uh, early COVID went on back order. I think it's indefinite back order now in Canada because I switched every chloroquine person. We had um, almost 12% of chloroquine. We're talking 10, 15 years. I've been in practice a long time a high, high percentage with real retinopathy. The screening back when was um, fields, but it was color vision. Now it's either OCT or uh, retinal photographs and visual fields. So the screening's more sensitive now, but of Plaquenil where they were clinically relevant loss of central vision, um, maybe zero or one, but of chloroquine, I, I'm humbled by that. Chloroquine is more effective on skin, absolutely. And it is far more toxic. So that's so it's a yes but not very common it would be the chloroquine group well let's move on because i know that um use and bella also has their topic they wanted to share with us too use tell me what else have you found interesting during this meeting yeah so uh, i would like to talk about uh one of the abstract that was presented at the press release for lupus today so this uh, abstract number is uh, 1463 um, so this uh, study is looking at the prognosis of uh, patients with non-renal lupus with low-grade uh, proteinuria. So I think I think this quite sparks my interest as well because, like, um, you know, my perception is seems to be thinking like you know, these patients seem to be going to be stable. You know, you see them sometimes urine dipstick one plus and you know urine PCR is like not point you know three. Uh, and 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 you thought they're going to do well, but this, this study is quite interesting. So they they um, took about 150 patients uh, of those uh, of a UPCR between 0.2 and 0.5, um, and they followed them up uh, up to you know uh, two and then two and over. And then what they found, so so they categorized people who uh, progress or people non-progress. Uh, because I think the, the, the criteria here, probably in America, like to do a, a kidney biopsy if your UPCR is uh, more than 0.5 gram. Um, so, uh, so, you know, this study shows, like, you know, at two years, uh, there were 50% uh, people who progress, you know, from this low grade to uh, not over, you know, 0.5 gram, and another 50% didn't. Uh, and what they then didn't uh, dissect uh, this group more closely. And when they, uh, they also found um, that this can be separated into two groups. So one is what they call it the fast progressor, and another one is the slow progressor. So the fast progressor would, uh, would the one that uh, progress within two years uh, and, and then the slow one is after two years uh, and when they found I like, you know they did a biopsy in quite a lot of like, these, these patients who who progress and uh, and what they found um, their fast progressor particularly um, said about 80 percent of the biopsy that were done um, showed um, you know active lupus nephritis that is uh, you know uh, amenable to uh, treatment so I think it, this is quite uh, an interesting uh, concept um, we seem to you know when we, we do get referrals like in the a and 
in a positive with astrology or something, whether it is lupus or not, we call them at-risk, you know, ANA. But actually, there is also at-risk lupus nephritis, which is this, you know, low-grade non-renal lupus nephritis, which potentially can progress. So um, also this study also invited, you know, more, um, you know, the importance of to find out, you know, better biomarkers so that you can then predict um, this, uh, you know, uh, from at-risk to, you know, uh, you know, progression to lupus nephritis. However, it's a bit caveat because of uh, this is retrospective studies. Um, so I think uh, they've already planned for more definitive, you know, future studies to get more samples and everything and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely need better biomarkers. I mean, liquid biopsies is something that has always been talked about, but I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. I want to just get a urine and know exactly whether or not they have lupus nephritis. I mean, I don't know when we're going to expect that. Hopefully. <laughs> Janet, what are you going to talk about? Um, so I have just two quick things. So one is on the theme of hydroxychloroquine, but really what I was interested in is adherence, because if patients don't take the drugs, they're not going to do well. And adherence is a surrogate for maybe other poor health behaviors and probably non-adherence of all sorts of other things too. Hard to say. So the first one is a, a solemn one. So it's from the SLIC, the uh, cooperating clinics of incident lupus cohort, multi-center throughout multiple countries. And what they wanted to look at was if you're on 400 milligrams a day of um, hydroxychloroquine, if you were above a certain blood level, you were considered adherent. Below it, you were considered non-adherent. So maybe if you're a fast metabolizer, you're kind of um, messed up, who knows? And then if you're on 200 milligrams a day, half that level was considered adherent. And basically the people that did not meet the target of the level, three bad things. More flares in year two, because the levels were done in year one of incident lupus, more damage over the next five years, and higher mortality in five years. So I thought, well, this is pretty solemn. So what can we do about it? Which led to the other abstract I did. So that abstract was 04, sorry, 0343. So one away from the other one we just heard, um, like a paired abstract. But I looked at another abstract, which was 0063. And the bottom line on that was, can we teach the lupus um, treating physicians, this was an, at an academic center, to look, and if the patients weren't filling on the EMR, you could look at prescription refills, if they were filling less than 80%, can you teach them to try to help in adherence? And although it was only 24 providers and, I don't know, something like 24 patients or something as well, what they found was that in under four minutes, it was like 3.8 minutes or something, they could discuss adherence and they interviewed the patients as well. And the patients actually realized for the most part that adherence was discussed. And also the patients thought it was about the right amount of time to help to educate them, which is only four minutes. So I thought, you know, I might be better spending four minutes on, you know, how could you take your drugs non-judgmentally? Um, tell me what the barrier is and let's try to resolve it. Um, instead of maybe talking about how's your dog, although that's important too. And that's uh, part of the humanism of, of treating people for a long period of time. But the next phase of the study, I think will need to be, okay, if you improve adherence by this discussion, so will the discussion improve adherence? That's one question. The other thing is, will improving adherence then help them to do better? Because it might be all 
combined with lack of access, with um, perhaps poor health-related behaviors, a different belief system. Um, the minority patients are often having a higher copay. Another abstract showed that. So I think it's all intertwined, but it's really important. We've talked a lot on hydroxychloroquine, one of our oldest drugs in lupus. If you don't take it, it doesn't work. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think Mike tweeted about how if the copay is more than $10, adherence dramatically dropped. And right. And that that's only a, 10 bucks, but 10 yeah. bucks a month adds up if you and have five up. other drugs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things that I think about a lot. And so this is where public policy matters. So for 10 bucks, you know, we could get someone, we get a 30% increase in hydroxychloroquine compliance, right? Do you think that spread out over a thousand people would be better than giving one person to cravacitinib? Probably, right? So at a public health perspective, it's a total travesty that we have that happening. And I think we should be talking more about it. It's very exciting we have these new drugs. I like the cravacitinib. I think it's interesting and exciting. But, you know, the fact that we're letting people have to pay and then they don't get hydroxychloroquine, that's got to be a net loss. And it hits the most vulnerable people too that can't afford it. Eric, and they showed, yeah, they, they showed, you know, just how every dollar of, of a copay makes a difference. And what's frustrating to me is when I was hearing that talk, I have no idea what, what my patient's copays are. And I order it. I don't know. I tell them it goes into a system. Things happen. The insurance company does its thing and it comes out. And I, it is completely a, a black box when you're ordering it. And there needs to be a transparent system that you put it in. This is how much it will cost your patient, have a discussion about that and, and see what you can do if it's not reasonable. Absolutely. Bella, tell me about you um, and what was your day like? What did you see that interests you? So I've been looking at a lot of disparities in pregnancy abstracts. Um, one of the abstract number is uh, 0965. It's pregnancy outcomes in lupus. Um, it was like a huge cohort, uh, 22 um, uh, this is Kaiser Permanente, uh, around 800 pregnant lupus patients. So it's it's considered a big cohort. Um, and one of the key takeaways was there was only 66% successful live births um, in, uh, in lupus pregnancies. Um, most of the other cohorts and most of the other studies have said like it's at least 80 to 85 percent. I've worked on uh, data which says, oh, pregnancy outcomes are improving. So yes, the pregnancy outcomes are in improving, but fetal outcomes such as, uh, you know, spontaneous abortions, therapeutic abortions are still pretty high. Uh, and this is like, uh, an actual cohort of patients. It's not just a research cohort. Um, and only 50% of the patients were seeing a rheumatologist during pregnancy. Uh, so, so this is, again, like pregnancy is the most vulnerable state in uh, lupus. Um, and again, there were a lot of racial disparities also described, which are not unknown, uh, but the, the numbers were striking. You're absolutely right. Um, reproductive health is actually one of my areas uh, that I, it's near and dear to my heart. I'm working with Megan Close with the Duke um, Initiative and the ACR Reproductive Health Initiative. I mean, there's not enough that goes into educating our patients about contraception, um, about, and, you know, there's not enough education for rheumatologists about what to monitor for, for each pregnancy trimester. I gave a lecture at the Florida State Society about what to monitor um, in each trimester of a patient who has lupus. And then we don't talk about even just about contraception and, and, and in terms of 
STDs. We don't talk about sex. And that's something that we really need to talk about. I mean, how many people here, raise your hand, talk to your patients about sex? I see the women, but I don't see a lot of the men raise their hands. <laughs> you guys, um, I mean, this is a message that we need to get out to everybody because this is impactful. This is very, very impactful because, you know, a lot of our lupus patients are women and we have to be comfortable. In fact, I did an interview with Patricia Dar, and she's with um, uh, she's in Michigan with Ascension Health. And she actually did a very novel study about getting vaginal smears instead of cervical smears to look for cervical cancer in these patients. Because a lot of the patients, like you said, Bella, I mean, there's social disparities. They can't get access to a gynecologist, but all they see is their rheumatologist. So she just took a plain old cervical brush. She had them do a self smear and then sent it into the cytopathologist. And they were able to detect abnormal cells. And so mm -hmm. these patients were more likely to go see a gynecologist. And just imagine if we incorporated that into our practice, you know, in addition to talking to them about reproductive health. I mean, I, I know that we worry about their kidneys. I know we worry about, you know, their lungs and, and disease, other disease measures, but we have a point here where we have to intervene and talk to them about sexual health and reproduction. Right. And we could save lives because HPV is more prevalent in our patients. It might be the handling of viruses, just like shingles is more prevalent. And HIV related cancer should be fully preventable in 2022. Shame on all of us that it's not. Sheila. Um, so Catherine, um, yeah, I just wanted to add to what you've um, mentioned about earlier, because I really, um, I really, in, uh, appreciated the session earlier on the practical guidance on um, reproductive health. So uh, Dr. Megan Klaus really gave a, a good lecture and, and the other um, lecturers in the session where um, she, she gave tips on how important that um, we routinely ask our patients um, uh, to, you know, to promote honest dialogue with them. And as rheumatologists, we need to provide accurate information and guidance so that our patients would know where to get the proper information. So I think that's very important um, in terms of, you know, not just taking time um, talking to them about the, the possible side effects and all of these um, all of these doses that the drugs, their drugs may be um, happening in their body, but you know, the issue on reproductive health is very important. Screening, um, screening most particularly. Bella, what did you have to add? No, I was like, especially in this day and age with, with the political climate and whatnot, uh, this can be a make or break for a lot of our patients. Um, you know, sort of talking to them about it, um, making sure they have the right resources sometimes uh, would, I mean, they, they, there's, and the, even maternal mortality is like six to seven times higher in lupus than non-lupus patients. So, um, you know, it's like the, the, the worst outcome possible. Uh, even that's so high. So I'm going to give a plug out to the ACR for actually putting together the Reproductive Health Initiative. I mean, you can refer your patients to that website. There's a video that we created to help patients navigate reproductive health. 
um, it lists about contraception, what to do during your pregnancy, what to look out for. I mean, it's very, very effective as a tool for patients in an easy to understand language. But um, we only have like just a couple of minutes left. I don't know if there's anything else y'all want to say before we say goodbye to our audience. I think we can. Yeah, I probably just wanted to squeeze one really um, in terms of uh, new treatment. Um, so I can't really talk much about it because it is going to be tomorrow. So it's going to be in the lip breaking abstract. Um, so the um, it's poster uh, lip, lip breaking is uh, L07. So this is a phase three trial of a drug called Teletakisep, uh, which is a dual inhibition of BAF and uh, April. Um, so this is a phase three trial conducted in China. Um, so what I'm just trying to say is the result is quite mind blowing. Uh, the delta difference against the standard therapy is massive. I think so. I'm really looking forward um, to hear it tomorrow to find more about you know you know what sort of subtype of patient that they put it in. Um, and also, um, you know, look into more further details about, you know, their clinical immunological and some safety, um, you know, um, response, and also um, what's their future plan so that um, this can be marketed, you know, more, more widely rather than just in China. That's awesome. Well, that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for watching us and follow all of us on Twitter, read our blogs, watch our videos. We got a lot to say. Bye, everybody.